wit, insight, literature. These words sum up classical stuff you should know. <laughs> Guys, <laughs> I'm on Sorry, my quest. I'm even, trying to change it up. Face. We need it. I'm trying to change it the window, the intro, because you guys have been making fun of me. Changing the windows? Changing, Changing the, the windows. windows. Um, anyway, hi, listeners. This is Classical Stuff You Should Know, a podcast put on by classical educators. We are three men who are part of the, uh, the classical education movement. For any new listeners, uh, classical education basically means trying to teach uh, in the old ways, trying to teach using an old pedagogy of, of questions, of logic, of dialectic, of Socratic dialogue, of the great books, and having a healthy dose of skepticism to uh, new and modern uh, methodologies of instruction. Um, that was a good summary. Thanks. That was good. Which, and also, it's very exciting because it's been a methodology of teaching that has been dead or has been not taught for like three generations, you know, sort of post-war uh, we had sort of this new progressive education, which we were all taught in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. And we are kind of rediscovering the old ways of teaching. It's like um, that scene in in uh, uh, was it Isaiah or Hezekiah when they discover they discover the um, they're doing renovations. The law, and they're yeah. like, oh man, they're, we've been totally screwing this yeah. up. When they're doing renovations on the temple and they find the old book of the law that no one's read for a long time, and they're like, ah, oh, crap, we're totally <laughs> this not. Is what we're supposed to be doing. This is what we're supposed to be doing. I feel that way. When I read um, about you know, just different ways of teaching, I'm like, oh, man, um, no wonder personality tests aren't working or whatever. Um, Do you know, I did my paideia talk on that. I know. So I still haven't yeah. listened to it yet. I, I, I need to. Did, anyway. Were you there for that one? I was not, but I, I, I got, um, to say I got the gist is not fair, but people sort of were talking about it and it sounded very interesting. I but I think it. I was giving a talk at the same time. I recorded it too. I can just I can cool. share it with you. Please do. Anyway, yeah. but this is a long um, intro just to say that we are uh, three guys who are part of a school, which is part of a series of schools that are trying to do school in a new way by doing it in an old way. Um, and so... That feels like a good tagline. Yeah. So we're doing this podcast to uh, usher you and welcome you guys into... Uh, classical education. Um, we have been doing a series on old Greek tragedies. Yep. And today, are we getting a happy one? No. Oh. No. <laughs> Not a chance. No. So, so, Thomas, take it away. Yeah, strangely enough, the one we did last time was kind of the happy one, even though it still involved the main character dying. But that's tragedy. And just before someone emails us, I think that's Josiah that, discovered, that rediscovered the law. Isn't that Josiah? Did I say Hezekiah? Yeah. It doesn't, it's super mm. not a big deal. I just, I'm preempting emails. So yeah, today we are talking about. Oh yeah, Hezekiah is the guy that like toured, had the Babylonians come tour his castle. He's like, hey man, check out my gold room. It's a room full of gold. And the Babylonians were like, duly noted. And then they invaded <laughs> like 20 years later. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. So yes, today we're going to be talking about Antigone, which is the third in the Theban cycle. So these are three plays by Sophocles. If you have not listened to the episodes on Oedipus Rex or Oedipus at Colonus, I'd recommend going back to those because this kind of wraps up that cycle. We've talked about this before, but Antigone is not actually, so normally the tragedies are written in a set of three. All three are presented at the the Grand Dionysia at the big festival every year. These three plays were not a part of one set. They're part of three different sets. Uh, but we don't have all of the plays from the other two sets, so we combine the three of them and then call it the Theban cycle. So these are three plays of Sophocles that make it, make it to us today. I personally think Antigone... I think Antigone is the best known of the three. I might be wrong. Do you all... I think... I thought Oedipus Rex is the best the known, mainly just because of the Sphinx and then, like, just poking your eyes out, and then there's the I've whole, I've never like, heard of Oedipus at Colonus. Okay, so same. Mm-hmm. So I, I've heard I, of the other two. And I think that, so probably Colonus is the least known. And so I think that Antigone is the best known because I did high school theater and every year you'd have multiple one-act play competitions, multiple schools doing Antigone as their play. So I, hmm. I wonder why. Does it have a good balance of male and female characters? Is that the deal? Mm, yes, I guess. Is it filled with heartbreaking pathos? It has lots of great monologues. Oh, cool so costumes? Good sets? Easy costumes. Easy set? Yeah, easy mm. set. Ah, there you go. Well, See, I'm thinking director. Yeah. You got to have <laughs> enough the roles for both guys and girls. You got to have an easy set and easy costumes. So I, I tried looking into it, but Antiquity is not actually one of the most done plays. But anyway, I thought Antiquity. Is it the importance of being earnest? <laughs> no, it's for a long time it was you can't take it with you. 
Um, oh, wait. you've all seen that one before. It's about an old dude and his family that all lives with him. It's a really good play. I was in it back in high school. Also, I think we might have done that one. I, I looked at I the top ten plays, and I would. I in high school, I was in I think four or five of them. So clearly, you know, if any of my old theater teachers are listening, you you chose well, I guess. What Maybe? would be like the hardest play to put on for high school or middle schoolers? Ulysses. Yeah, I was thinking like Apocalypse Now. Oh, sure. the new <laughs> the new Spider Man play. <laughs> yeah, I think the tech involved in that one would be Insane. unbelievable. Lion King. You ever heard about that though? Spider Man. Lion King would be is tough. It in the dark. It's whatever the new, the Broadway play was. Anyway, their their Spider Man actor would keep getting injured from all the stunts that they would have to do. So that's got to be in the running at least. Um, what about uh, like, the Phantom? Sure. Uh, Henry mean, the Phantom of the Opera. Henry the Fifth is but just that like drop in chandelier. That's going to take a pretty penny. That's true. Yeah. Henry V is just like major battles. That might be rough. Hey, speaking of Henry V, so we will go into the plot of the play in a second, but the Antigone is dealing with a few central questions, and I think we will start with those questions themselves. Gentlemen, you're going to think this is a very simple question, and it will kind of expand is from there. Is it a quiz show? It's not a quiz <sighs> show. It's a, dis- it's a conversation, gentlemen. Conversation show. No one watches that. Well, they are not watching. They're listening. <laughs> so let's the dive news. In. Yeah. And talk shows are a thing. Oh, but yeah. talk the shows. Voice? They're scream shows. Not I the mean, voice. It's not the, really that discussion. What is it? Is it the voice? The view. The view. That's what I'm thinking of. What's the view? It's the, oh, the, um, the, the um, people who. So it's a show for moms. Ladies yeah, around a table. In the morning. Yeah. Ours is not that because we're not moms, but we're, we are around a table. Okay. So our very simple question that we will start this discussion with on is, gentlemen, should we follow the law? Whose law? Only insofar as the law is just. Really? Um, so yeah. if you disagree with a piece of law, you can just ignore it. No, not if I disagree with it. I think I think the biblical stipulation is that you follow the law unless yeah. it expressly commands you to do something. You follow the law unless it religious, right? Unless it commands you to blaspheme. And then So all laws other than requiring blasphemy. Or requiring, you know, that I'm not allowed to pray or something. Something like that, where it would require me to do something that God has expressly commanded. Wherever it contradicts God's law is something I don't do. And then in all other cases, you know, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Okay, so there are a few categories where there are unjust laws, but broadly laws should be followed. Yeah. That's what yeah. we're saying. I, but tell me, I don't understand, how can a law be unjust? So well, you're, you're giving me this one example of your Christian faith means that there are certain things that you can't do, but so take, take any city, take Austin or take a country, the United States, they're going to be different groups of people with many different religions. Does, does anyone basically get to say, I have a religious conviction that is contrary to whatever a law is and that makes it okay to not do that thing? Well, we've got the freedom of religion. So we have the, we have the freedom to congregate and to worship um, as we, as we want. So if any of that sort of changed where if it was illegal to go to church, if it was legal to hold communion, if it was, if it was illegal to stand up and say the body broken for you and that Christians were not allowed to take that and the government would come and, and cease, then I would say that I would break that law by doing underground communion and feel no, and feel like I was not well, I get. I am breaking the law, but I am doing it um, um, because of my, my of my Christian conviction. So I would not see it. I would see it as like a tragedy and a shame that my nation was such that was uh, had enshrined laws that were against God's commands. But um, but I would not stop um, remembering Christ at communion. I think I see what you're aiming at. Maybe that this is a slippery slope. That should I claim my religion is face punching, right. then they mm-hmm. had a lot of face punching, then I could walk around punching faces and therefore would be justified in my own right. And I think this is possibly... It's called faith punching, right? <laughs> faith punching? <laughs> Not face punching, even better. <laughs> That's my religion? I'm a faith puncher? I'm a faith puncher. <laughs> that I feel like it's butting up against the crime and punishment, Raskolnikov's big theory that he said where if you if the great man has a great purpose that he needs to accomplish, he is allowed to he break duty the bound. law. He is duty bound to break the law, but the people who follow the law and the law itself is duty bound to Stop b- essentially man. catch them if they can. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think in certain cases that's true, right? If my religion requires me to break the law, 
I can't be mad when the law actually comes down on me, right? I can't be like, well, you guys, uh, I, I know I'm breaking the law, so the but it's what I, my conviction compels me to do. So that consequence is still okay, even if it's in the service of enforcing what you're saying is an unjust law. Well, I would probably even take it further and talk about the idea that um, that the laws of a, of, a, of a nation should be reflecting or corresponding to the laws of nature, that there is such a thing as justice out there. It's not that justice is whatever a nation says is, is going to happen. It's that there is a thing called justice. Otherwise, um, rebellions don't make sense. And if we are not, and so if, so if a law is unjust, we would say that it is a law that is not conforming to justice. Whereas I think a lot of people would say all laws are, are just arbitrary. the will of the powerful, arbitrary, arbitrary will of the powerful. And so uh, whoever's in power can make whatever laws they want. But I think you can, f you, it rankles in your soul when you feel a law that is actually mm -hmm. unjust, whereas there are laws that we all think mm -hmm. are great because they are just like, don't steal. Yeah. Right. That's not something just put there by the powerful. So th when I think about it, there's, so I remember when I was a kid, my dad was telling me the story of that. There are three different kinds of baseball umpires. So there's one baseball umpire. He says, it's either a ball or it's a strike. And all I need to do is say what it is. And then there's one baseball umpire that says it's either a ball or a strike. And I do my best to try to discern what it is. And then there's a third baseball umpire who says it's neither a ball. It's, it's nothing until I say what it is. <laughs> um, and I feel like I am much more the first umpire that there are balls and there are strikes and we just need to call them like we see them. Or maybe more like the second umpire, where we try our best to call them like we see them. I was going to say, I'm, I'm umpire two. But I think two. the third, there's a lot of people who are the third umpire that say, nothing is in anything until we say what it is. So how do we know, in the case of baseball... How do we know? We, need, we teach Aristotle, uh, Thomas. Thanks. That's Aristotle how we know. is always the correct answer. And <laughs> my, my sweet leadership class has come to learn that the answer to all of my questions is either Thomas Aquinas or Aristotle. <laughs> yes, you are 100% correct. But, but say more. How do we... AJ was getting at this question. So what's keeping all of us from having our own private religious convictions that we then say, well, I can't actually follow that law. I, uh, I'm a certified speed demon. Therefore I must actually break traffic law or else I'm not satisfied in my religious belief or, and that's obviously a goofy example, but we might, I mean, there are people who following their religious convictions kill or sure do various things you're not supposed to do and those things conflict with national law then, unless the national law allows to, for those. So when you say supposed to, what do you what do you mean supposed to do? Because they would say, I'm supposed to do this thing. I'm supposed to kill. I'm supposed so to like do. honor killings. That sure. would probably be sure. the one that, I mean, that, that's come up in Canada a couple of times where you have these uh, families who have come from a culture where um, there are honor killings, where you can kill a member of your family if they have dishonored or if they've gone outside the bounds of religious or cultural norms um, it is your duty to kill a member of your family. Uh, if, if she, usually the daughter, she has brought shame to your family. And that, and, in, and you know, Canadian law has said, regardless of this being your religious conviction, it is um, murder. So I, I guess laws end up having to take stands on um, and have to draw lines saying religious conviction can go here and can go no further. And then for the person for whom hold that religious conviction, um, they probably can't, they can complain that they are living in a country that doesn't believe in their, in their religious laws, but they're going to have to pick which side they want to be on. I mean, for well, me, yeah. I, I would say I would pick the side of Christianity regardless of its illegal. If Veritas becomes illegal or if going to church and taking communion becomes illegal, then I'm going to be a criminal. Um, yeah. Well, laws as they are designed are, ideally for the preservation of a nation and a people and not necessarily for the preservation of the elite. Sometimes that is the case where the elite want to stay in power and they, they make laws to make that happen. Uh, when it is designed to be for the preservation of a nation, I think they will occasionally butt up against religious conviction when religious conviction threatens the well-being of the nation. For example, if I, if I give religion completely free reign, then I leave myself open to the abuse that someone says my religion is to be in charge of everyone else in town. <laughs> yeah. And if and if my laws have given that completely free reign, then that person all of a sudden has usurped a town and my mayor doesn't matter anymore, mm -hmm. right? And there are any number of abuses that can come from claiming religious convictions or actually having religious convictions that threaten the well-being of the nation. So where your 
religion might butt up against the well-being of the nation, I think those two things are in conflict and you have to do what you think is right. And in that case, it might be to go up against the nation, then the nation has the right to go up against you, right? You're coming into conflict with a group of people. I mean, this is like where the Pastafarians um, get tax exempts, yep. tax exemptions. You know Pastafarians, right, Hannenberg? Yeah, they believe in the spaghetti monster. Yeah, the, so the big spaghetti monster in the sky, they're basically a religion. They've, they've, they, they're they're a, um, um, a satire or a mockery of religion. And then they are setting themselves up as a religion in order to get the things that like, for example, tax exemptions or, or the, the, the kind of the special privileges that religious bodies or religious organizations get in this country. And those um, have a sweet name. Pastafarians? Yeah. Anyway. That's great. So that's something we just have to be okay with? I think it is. I think it's just the messiness of, I mean, the, the alternative is either like a theocracy where you just got to pick a religion and then just like organize your society really around lean that. into it. Yeah. Or it's to completely ban all religious expression from having any enshrined political rights. We are, and then take a stand on the, on the atheist side. We are a nation of no religion and any outward sign of religion is going to be seen as a threat to the state. Um, And you see that happening in countries from time and time again. Um, France taking kind of um, steps to say, we don't want to see crucifixes and we don't, we don't want to see hijabs. Mm. Um, because it is in conflict with our sort of our French national identity. Um, yeah. And so in the, in the United States, we have said we want to have freedom of religion, and we are also going to draw boundary lines around acceptable human behavior for our nation. Right. They're going to be in conflict. And if when you're going to allow free yeah. reign of religion, there's going to be conflict yes. somewhere, and you have to draw the line at some place. Mm-hmm. Can I take a small detour? I, the... the Exclusions we've raised so far are for religious conviction. Is that the only category where one could b- break the law in good faith? I think as as a Christian, perhaps yes. Okay. Because what God has that what Jesus has asked us to do is follow the laws of our nation. If I wasn't a Christian and I didn't hold to you know render to Caesar what is Caesar's. I, I might rail against any law I thought was not beneficial to me or I didn't think was fair or any, I mean, depending on what I believed in this scenario, I I could go up against the law depending on what sort of allowances I'd given myself. I'm just trying to think, is there, could there be a category of irrational laws, laws that are believed to be passed, laws that are believed to be logical when they're passed, but I guess are not well thought Like prohibition? Out. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so, I think in good faith, Christians are to follow those laws unless they violate religious convictions. Unless they violate religious convictions. And if you don't like them, you can always work towards their abolishment as, uh, I mean, didn't William Wilberforce do this? Mm-hmm. Sure. Right? So he didn't necessarily rail against everything. He worked within parliament to get rid of slavery in the UK. Okay. He didn't lead a rebellion. Yeah, he didn't blow up slave ships. He, he lobbied to have slavery illegal. Yep. By showing, you know, and, and his religious conviction was part of it, by showing the unjustness of it. And I think on the far end, I, I, I can't help but think of Bonhoeffer and the assassination plot on Hitler. I think that is real crazy territory that I hope I never have to deal with. Um, I think Bonhoeffer was in a really unique position where there's a tyrant that was killing millions of people and he felt as though... He needed to attempt to he needed, kill that. He needed to do something about it. I, I think there. Are, I know there are a lot of Christians who are strict pacifists and never would do that and would pray instead, yeah. or some that would try to work within Germany and try to get him taken out of power. Right? There's there are different avenues to do this, but that gets to a scary place of whether murder is justified for political reasons. Political reasons. Like I said, there. I hope I never have to deal with that scenario where I could possibly save millions. Yeah. By killing one man, that's that's not a decision I want to make. Yeah, because I get prove- to violating yeah. the religious conviction to achieve a political end, which is kind of the opposite of the question we started with. Right. I prefer the Corey Ten Boom option to the Bonhoeffer option. What's the Corey Ten Boom option? I mean, she she worked to um, to free Jews in in occupied Holland during the war mm-hmm. and was thrown into um, uh, Ravensbrück women's concentration camp, and her sister died there. But but yeah, I mean. There are, um, yeah, when, when does the, the free man or when does the rational man go against the state and when does the rational man um, uh, submit to the state 
I think is a very interesting question and one that high schoolers need to think about. I think it's one we need to think about. Yeah, I'm not totally because even in preparing for this, I'm not sure I have great answers to a lot of these questions. Mm-hmm. It's been... I always think about. Have you ever seen a Man for All Seasons? Yes. Have you ever seen a Man for All Seasons? It's a story of um, uh, Sir Thomas More yeah. uh, when King Henry VIII wanted him to um, pass the law so he could divorce his wife, and Thomas More was like, "I'm not doing that," and ended up losing his head for it. There's this scene where um, oh, I can't remember all the details, but. Someone basically, isn't Thomas More is the Chancellor of England. Yeah. Hmm? Isn't it his daughter trying to, I don't, I don't know if you're yeah. talking about this, trying to talk him out of. He's trying to, he's, he's trying to, she says, use your power to arrest that man because he's dangerous. He's a bad man. And Thomas More says, well, there's not a law against being bad. And, um, and there's, a, and, and Cranmer, I think, says, um, uh, would you give the devil the benefit of the law? And Thomas More says, yes, I would. And Cranmer says, I would not. I would tear down every law to get to the devil. And Thomas More says, all right. And once you've torn down every law and the devil turn, turns around and looks you in the face and there is with no law to protect you, who's going to protect you then? Um, how are you going to stand in those winds that blow? He sa- Thomas More says, I would uh, give the devil the benefit of the law only if only for my benefit. Like if you tear down every law and then to get at a certain problem, um, then what are you going to do when new problems arise and you've torn down the laws of England? Like, oh, this is the very question mm-hmm. that comes up. Are we? I hope we're on topic here, Thomas. Yes, we are. Okay. This is the very topic that comes up when our student last year wanted to do the one on cell phone privacy. When you give the government a backdoor into cell phones, what happens when the government wants to get into your cell phone? Right. It's you've torn down every law to get at something you don't like, yep. terrorism, mm-hmm. and now all of a sudden that law is no longer there to protect you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the freedom and security um, balance is is one that needs to be balanced back and forth. If you have total freedom, well, you have a lot of unsafe, you have a lot of unsafe people. If you have total security, we're going to have a lot of unfree people. Um, and the advent of our technology has been speeding up faster than our institutions have been able to figure out how to deal with it. Sure. Um, so maybe this AJ's example is helpful in getting at my question earlier of, let's say a law is passed saying that there must be a backdoor into all cell phones. Well, can I then go have a communication system that is separate from what the cellular network? Anyway, uh, is it, yours is getting to a logical problem with that access to cell phones can be used for not great purposes. Um, and that we'd be opening up ourselves up to that. There's not necessarily a religious right to privacy. I don't. Maybe you would. Would you all disagree with that? I don't think there's a religious right to privacy. Not the no. one that I can think of off the top yeah. of my head. Nope. I think we eventually get to it through the um, Bill of Rights, but that's an interpretation. That's later case law. Anyway, so let's dive into the play itself, which will also get at some of these questions that we're talking about here. So Antigone. Antigone is a name that we have uh, discussed before because she's been in the two previous plays. So in Oedipus Rex, the first of the cycle, Antigone shows up at the very end with her sister Ismene, or sometimes you'll hear it said Ismene, but I think Ismene sounds better, so I'm saying that. You don't want to be a meanie. I don't. <laughs> so Antigone and Ismene show up at the end to say goodbye to their father before he uh, wanders into the desert and leaves Thebes. Is that Oedipus? That's Oedipus. Oedipus. Father, brother? Father, brother, yes. So before Oedipus leaves Thebes, he says goodbye to Antigone and Ismene. It's this, he asks Creon, this is the the one favor he asks from Creon, is that he would have the privilege of uh, saying goodbye to his daughters before he leaves. Creon grants that. It's this noble moment for Creon. The only noble moment for Creon. We see a decline in Creon, which then is, we see more decline of Creon in this, in Antigone as well. Anyway, that's the end of Oedipus Rex. In, in, in Oedipus at Colonus, the second play, Antigone is the one who has stayed. Again, it's changed the details of the first play. Antigone goes with Oedipus at, and eventually to Colonus, which is near Athens. This is where Oedipus dies. That's what happened in the last episode where we talked about this Theban cycle. So spoiler, I guess, I don't know if it's a spoiler alert. It's a spoiler if this is your first time. Reverse spoiler. Yeah, I guess. Anyway, go back and listen to that episode because this one will make more sense with that. That's just a reminder. That's a reminder. The thing that you heard me talk about is all of this. Anyway, and then today is Antigone. So again, this is after the death of Oedipus. This is also after an event that is discussed at the the end of Oedipus at Colonus, 
but has happened before Antigone starts. And that is the battle between Oedipus's two sons. The two sons are Ateocles and Polynices. And we, we discussed this last time, but this conflict comes from a change in details from Oedipus Rex again. So when Oedipus leaves the city in the first play, Creon takes control. Well, those details are changed in a play by Aeschylus called Seven Against Thebes. And in that play, the two brothers decide to trade off control of the city every year. How long do you all think that lasted? One, one year. Yeah, one it, change it one year. One year. Yeah. <laughs> it, it lasted one year and zero changeovers. So Ateocles was the first one put in charge. He was king. He was supposed to hand over control to Polynices. And Ateocles said no. Polynices said, hey, give it back. And Ateocles said no. So Polynices raises an army. I am shocked. Yeah, exactly. Can't it, believe that a king would not want to relinquish power. Yeah, he, Especially brothers. Yeah, oh, seriously. The <laughs> I'm so shocked. I'm shocked up and down. And so then Polynices gets three captains, or I'm sorry, seven captains to head up his army. Those are the seven who are against Thebes. So the, the seven are the seven commanders. Aeschylus's play. Is and that's about, its own play, right? Yes, the seven, seven against Thebes. Thebes. Mm-hmm. So I'm waiting for our students to put together a play where it's seven students that want to change all of the rules about Marx, and they call it Seven Against the Bees. Oh, I would read that play. Right? Oh, That'd dang. Be a good one. That'd be, That'd be a great play. We have more than seven who are proposing changes to our... Anyway, I would read that play a lot. <laughs> it would make me laugh. So that all of that happens... Make him write a play. Is that our new appeal system? Mm-hmm. Be having to write a play? I we got acted out. I think I would Oh, man. Yeah, if you want to change a rule, you have to put together a play about it, and then if the play is compelling enough, we'll consider yeah, changing yeah, the rule. So stand up and we cheer, and yeah, I'd be down for that. I love it. We're going to change it all immediately. So that all happens before Antigone starts. So in the course of Seven Against Thebes, Ateocles does not give up power. Polynices raises an army, attacks Thebes. The two brothers kill each other. So both of them are dead. Hey, problem solved. Well, kind of. This creates a new problem, which the, the play of Antigone is about. So they kill each other. Creon then takes control of Thebes again and institutes martial law. So he is, hmm. is running the city essentially on his own. And Creon needs to make a decision about these two brothers of what is going to happen with them. They're because, dead. Because they're dead. But what, what needs to happen with dead bodies? They need to be buried. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he he immediately takes control in one of his first, as the play presents, the first thing that he presents is that Polynices cannot be buried. And Ateocles can be buried. And this is because Polynices is viewed as a traitor to the city because instead of allowing his brother to stay king, he raised an army and attacked the city that he claimed to care about. So in that sense, he's a traitor to the city, doesn't deserve a burial, should instead stay laid out in the battlefield for the birds to pick at him, to for his body to decompose in public, which is a great shame to him. And doesn't it condemn him to a horrible afterlife as exactly. well? Exactly. Like they're condemning him to an eternity of disfigurement. Yes. And I get this wrong. You would know better because I think this is in the Odyssey, but uh, I believe he doesn't get to go to the afterlife. Like it's yeah. a condemnation to stay on earth as a spirit in like in a tortured existence. So it's, it's a huge deal. It's real bad news. Yes, you don't want, you don't want that. It's super bad news. Yeah. So this, this is the, the chief conflict of the play. Antigone wants to bury his, or her Antigone wants to bury her brother because he is her brother. And essentially everyone is telling her that she should not do this because it's, it's against like, the law because, because it's against the law. So they give a few reasons for why she shouldn't do it. Do you want to take a swing at what any of these reasons are? Because you get caught and punished. Pu- so punishment, punishment is a big one that they go into because it'd make you a traitor, make you a traitor. So Creon has this whole thing where he talks about the duties that we owe to our city. And one of them is that we are submitting our will to that city that we're a part of, that hmm. we need order. We need justice. And if we just disagree with every law that we don't like, we don't have a coherent society. We can't operate if we are all picking our own laws. And there's something compelling in that. Anyway, that's Creon's. And those are the two. Mm-hmm. Ismene is the one who says, don't do it because you'll be killed. So the condemnation side of it. Mm-hmm. And then Creon is appealing to her as a, as a citizen, as a citizen that the, her duty is to follow the law. So that's the conflict. Does she give any sort of monologue or rationale as to why she decides to bury or go off and bury her brother? Or is the whole play her sort of decision making? She is pretty set from the beginning that she's going to do this. And everyone gives their argument to her, but she is not convinced by any of them. She's like, don't care. Yeah. But. Well said, don't care. But the question is why she disagrees or rather 
it's possible to disagree with the law, but still follow it. But she feels like mm. she needs to go the step beyond and not only disagree with it, but then take action against it. But it's not that, like, if she disagrees with the law, like, it, it, it's a desecration to her family. So she yes. has, so in the or, in her ordered affections, she has put family above city. Yes. And so when city makes a claim on family, like, it's not like the, the it's telling you to do something and you don't want to do it, but you do it anyway begrudgingly because you you want to follow the law. It's no, if I don't do this, or if I yeah, if I don't bury my my brother, then I am um, doing an uh, I'm committing an evil against my family in order to do uh, a, a good thing as a citizen. But in her internal ordered affections, family is going to supersede city. So let me, so the argument you made is basically what she says. So I'll read what, so the way the plot goes, Ismene tries to talk her out of it. Creon tries to talk her out of it. It doesn't work. So Antigone goes and it's not an actual burial. She puts dust over him and then pours libations out on him. It's the ceremony of it without him actually being buried under the sand. Oh, so she does like a technicality? Yes, Mm. because what she cares about is the release of soul and not dishonoring his body. Um, So she does as much as she can trying not to get caught. That's a pretty sweet middle ground she's found there. I know. Yeah. So do the gods reward her for it? Or they're like, nice try, he's not buried. There's actually this weird part. It's somewhat controversial what is actually happening. So... The so there's this back and forth between Antigone, Creon, and Ismene in the beginning, and then they all leave, and the chorus is talking, and then a messenger comes and says, "Hey, we found Polynices' body, and it was covered in dust, so it had the ceremonial burial, but we can't figure out where what happened, where it came from, who did it. No one saw the person who did it. It just happened." And Antigone's like, "Huh, <laughs> weird." But was it was it you? <laughs> So, but what they do is the guards disrupt the the sand, the the dust that's on top of him, and then leave. And then this kind of storm comes in, and they can't see anything. Well, the storm moves back, and Antigone is there doing the ceremony mm. again. But the question is, why did she do it the second time? Other other than the plot device of we needed to catch her, because with that first ceremony, the soul's already been released according in mm. the Greek worldview. So that part has already been accomplished, and maybe she cares about the tradition side of it of just wants the body to be covered in sight. But I don't know. There's a, a line of argument that goes, the gods actually were the ones who did the burial that at night they covered him with dust mm-hmm. just from the wind blowing on him. And they are the ones who actually accomplished the burial. And then it's Antigone's pride, Antigone's need to do something herself that mm-hmm. motivates the second time. Or some people think Ismene is the one who actually goes and does mm. it. Or she's if if the gods were the one that do the first burial, and then the soldiers are like, no, 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 yep. no, no, and they then they dust it off, then it's kind of piety. It could be piety driving Antigone to go and to redo the work because of the gods summer. that yep. were undone by men. Yep. Or if it was just a storm that blew sand over him, that might not count. So maybe mm-hmm. she's thinking if it was Must just be a storm, real careful. Yeah. But so the soldiers. When they see the body, they recognize they, it as they, they see that this was intent. It looks like an intentional because there's libations burial. too, right? Yes, it's not exactly. just dusty, it's not just the dust on top. So mm-hmm. it looks like he's been buried overnight. So, unless it was raining wine, yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> it wouldn't have been, that wouldn't have worked, right? But it happens overnight with guards watching, yeah, yeah, and they don't see it happen. Mm. So, maybe they're just bad guards anyway. The, there's some kind of like question of what's happening there, but regardless, Antigone is caught going out a second time to do this burial, pouring libations. She's caught. She doesn't deny any of it. She says, I did this, and I know that I was breaking the law, and I know that there's punishment of death. She owns up to all of it. She's taken into Creon, and Creon asks her uh, a few questions about it uh, among them. And still you had the gall to break this law. Antigone, of course I did. It wasn't Zeus, not in the least, who made this proclamation, not to me. Nor did that justice dwelling with the gods beneath the earth ordain such laws for men. Nor did I think your edict had such force that you, a mere mortal, could override the gods, the great, unwritten, unshakable traditions. They are alive, not just today or yesterday. They live forever, from the first of time, and no one knows when they first saw the light. Cool. So her Get argument... Girl. Yeah. And she, she goes on for pages and pages because she has a lot to say. Oh, she got it then. Yeah. But her argument is what you're saying is that there's a there's a law there's a deeper law there's a deeper law that she is following that contradicts Creon's law, but she still has to follow the deeper law 
Part of it is for piety's sake because she is honoring the gods. That's what, she, that's what she's saying. But it's even deeper than that. It's that justice is in contradiction to what Creon has ordered. Yeah. That, that, so she's an Aristotelian. Like there is a deeper law. There is a there is a city can either reflect law yep. properly or it can be in disharmony with the way law ought to be. Yep. And in this instance, the city is in disharmony and she is in harmony with natural law and is going to honor her family and is going to bear the consequences for it. So I, yeah, I think that gets complicated first because I think when the kings of Greece were declaring laws, many of them were appeals to the gods. Yes. Right? This, yes. I am putting forward a law because this is what the gods Creon have. thinks he's being pious. Creon thinks he's doing the right thing. He's not intentionally saying, I hate the gods. Let's do this law. So there you go. When she appeals to the gods as higher powers, she's saying your law isn't, isn't what it's purporting to be. Right. Right. Whereas I don't think a lot of the nations today would say we are putting forth God's law. True. And on top of that, I mean, yes, Graham, you might claim that there is a deeper law, but in certain instances, and especially when it comes down to certain things, people disagree about that deeper law. Abortion is an example of one of those things where some people say that the deeper the deeper law is that women have autonomy over their bodies, whereas some say the deeper law is not to murder a fetus. So there's, there is, while there is, I think, deeper law there that both murder is wrong and women should have autonomy with their bodies, these two things kind of come in conflict and where exactly the line should be drawn is difficult. Let me, let me also, I'll take Creon's side for a second. So who wants to take Creon's side? I do because you feel bad for the guy for some stuff that'll happen later. And well, anyway, he gets into a pyramid scheme. It's a real, how did you know (laughs) the original pyramid scheme? Uh, no, next to Egypt. I don't know. Anyway, so that's what I was trying to <laughs> Cairo, that's, that's the original thinking, yeah. pyramid scheme. So what Creon would say and does say, I'm summarizing, is that uh, Polynices was a traitor to the city. He actually killed people in the city of Thebes. Uh, he's the reason that there was any conflict. If he had, again, I understand him not wanting to submit and say, Ateocles, you can be king, but he could have done that and he could have appealed wisely, AJ, like you said earlier. He didn't have to start a rebellion. He could have... Appealed to the old men of the city. Exactly, and have them affirm him as king. He could have done that, and he didn't. And so what Antigone wants to do is honor a traitor to the city instead of giving him the just punishment that he earned from murdering people from his town. But he's already received the punishment. He has died. He's died. But So then there's, there's no... So the death is the natural consequence of entering into battle. There's a chance of death. But there's a further condemnation that he started this battle in the first place. He is responsible for all deaths that occurred in the conflict between the two brothers. He initiated that. Mm-hmm. And so here's an instance of where what we would appeal to as justice is coming into conflict. Yes. Right? She does not feel it is just for them to go so far and condemn him as a brother and Creon, I think, feels that it is unjust to honor a traitor in such yes. a way. So but, they both appeal to justice. But the yeah. gods have put out, and the gods have said, gods. hey, if the body's left desecrated, it's going to wander the afterlife, and that's real bad for them. Therefore, you should bury the dead. That's, that's the reason for the law. And Creon's taking it, and he's weaponizing it by saying, hey, we can dishonor, we can desecrate the bodies of the dead to give them a big F you in the afterlife. Let's do that. Like, the reason for the law to exist was... The gods are saying it is bad for souls to wander around in the afterlife. Therefore, bury your dead. And Creon's like, I want that to happen. I want souls to wander around. I mean, I'm always leery of these sorts of discussions when they involve the Greek gods. It's not exactly like the Greek gods put a whole lot of thought in anything. (laughs) I don't think they were thinking, this thing is bad. Therefore, we'll give this law. I think the gods were just like, hey, this thing happens. Do what you want. And I'm going to go snog some ladies. Yeah, yeah. That's what Zeus was thinking. Mm-hmm. He wasn't thinking, I will do what is best for mankind. Poof, I'm a swan. Yeah, he's like, <laughs> I'm going to be a swan and hang out with this lady. And hopefully my wife don't find out. Like, yeah, that's yeah. what the God, they're never, they never put, I mean, yes, in Greek tragedy, the gods are seen both They're not these as like, like great legislators right. of order. Yeah, but yeah. In, in some, the funny thing is sometimes they are seen as that. Mm-hmm. They are these great, wonderful le- legislators and patrons of towns. And then sometimes they're these horrible, petty People And I mean, maybe that's supposed to mirror or evoke the same thing that humanity can be. We can be the great highs and we can be those terrible lows. But typically the gods are leaning more towards the lows than they are the highs. And they're Mm -hmm. certainly not infallible. So appealing to them as a source of law always seems specious to me. That's interesting. So Zeus's reference in that 
quote I just gave you, but it's never said this God told us that this happens or this God says we need to bury our dead. Yeah. It's almost Zeus is a derp, which is true, but it's assumed among everyone. Well, that's not even true. They're both appealing to a justice that this person needs to be buried. No one is saying that there's a law that says all people should be buried or that justice says all people should be buried. It's all focused on this one. Just this one. Polynices should Polynices be buried. So, we just said so Antigone gets caught going back out there to do this burial for her brother. She's caught. She owns up to it. Get, is in front of Creon. There, Creon condemns Antigone to death and also condemns her sister Ismene to death as well. Oh, that's just a little too far. Yeah, Ismene was not involved. We didn't see any involvement of Ismene, but Ismene tries to cover for Antigone when Antigone first shows up. Mm. And so Creon's kind of mad about that. So condemns both of them to death, sends them off. And they talk about this later. Ismene eventually will get, um, will not actually be put to death. Creon will eventually relent on that because even he sees that that's ridiculous. And Antigone's death is not actually to be beheaded or anything simple like that is to be buried underground and then the bricks will surround her and then she'll be alive in a tomb essentially. So you get this weird inverse of the live person is put into the ground in a tomb and the dead person is above ground where, and they should be buried. And there's an, there's um, an unnaturalness to yeah. that split that Creon mm-hmm. has done. So Creon is clearly in the wrong with this. Like yes. he's, so he, what he says, he wants to honor the gods in not putting her to death the quick and easy way. And so instead of actually killing her, he's going to bury her underground, which is actually way worse. Way than worse. Actually just killing her. So this is that's where he is. And then they, this has not been talked about at all in the play. All of a sudden, Creon's son, Haman, shows up. And we find out that Haman is, is engaged to Antigone. So the person that Creon had just put to death is the person that his son is supposed to marry, this person that his son is deeply in love with. And it's oh, man, it's like Greek tragedy. Yeah, seriously, though. It's, <laughs> and I bet you can imagine where this goes. But we had no idea that this was true. Haman comes on, and he is he is uh, uh, deferential to his father, shows great respect to him, says that he understands why he has to have these laws, understands why he has to condemn Antigone, but then starts pushing back and saying that Antigone is actually on the side of justice. So warning Creon that the, the, the real appeal that Haman makes, which... I'm not a huge fan of Haman says that the people are siding with Antigone and that Creon will have a popular revolt if he follows this path that he's going down. Well, I think Heck yeah, refusing will. to bury your dead is such a, maybe it's just a deep cultural moray, yes. right? It's totally taboo not to do. And yes. so using that as a punishment, maybe you're right, Donaldson, that him weaponizing this is way far over the line. Yeah. I also can't help but imagine Haman as a frat boy because I just want hey to man. say, hey man, hey I like man. all the time. Hey oh, man. hey man. Hey man. Except he's a frat boy in love. <laughs> hey he man. He's a frat boy in love. He's a frat he's boy like in love. Son of the he's king. all honorable. He's like frat yeah, boy yeah, too, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Maybe he's just super honorable, and then whenever one of his frat buds comes up, he's like, hey man. He goes, oh, hey man. <laughs> <laughs> That's where he got the name. I like that. <laughs> he's a cool dude. So he stands up to his dad, but he does it in a really respectful way, which is, Creon has this whole monologue where he talks about how like Heyman is the shining example of what a son is supposed to be, and that fathers around the world would be joyous to have a son like Haman and then Haman disagrees with him and then Creon like curses him and says I hate you and it mm. ends poorly it ends with Haman saying you will never see me again and then he leaves does he go in the tomb does we'll he go get, hang out in the tomb we'll, with we'll Antigone so after that I'm gonna make sure I get oh. all my scenes right so Haman leaves which is a bummer the chorus also turns against Creon which is a bummer because chorus is just the old dudes of the city and they're not sold on it. Tiresias, the blind prophet from the first play, comes oh, back. Oh, Tiresias! Yeah. He's Tiresias. Yeah, so Tiresias comes and says, hey, you need to listen to me. Yeah. And that's like rule number one in Greece, is yeah. if Tiresias says something, you better listen. So he warns that if Creon doesn't, move, doesn't change from his path, that there will be death in his family. And Tiresias says that Creon is, in fact, not honoring the gods. And this is a representative of the gods. He had been at a sacrificial, I don't know what it's called. He had been at the temple. He attempted to do a sacrifice, and the fire wouldn't go. Like, Mm -hmm. no fire would start in the temple. And he's like, oh, no. (laughs) And so he rushed to Creon to tell him that the omens are particularly bad and that Creon is bringing this on the city. And if he doesn't relent, then it's going to lead to death in his family. So wait, why do high school students do this? I bet this is completely incomprehensible without at least a little bit of 
Why do high school students do what? Like, why would you put on this as a play? Because I feel like modern audience, audiences, without knowing that the burial thing is a taboo and all, like, it's got to be so hard to connect with. I think that, I mean, the fundamental conflict of the play is... A sad Antigone's, girl. And taking these personal conventions, <laughs> sad girl versus the state. And so the... M- it's the perfect, like, 14-year-old yes. girl drama. No oh, no, it. it's... I, I get you, but no I'm just saying... No one gets me! Yep. How as... I feel like it would be hard to totally grok as an audience. Sure. It's normally... when You're when just I, happy to see your kid on stage yeah, delivering lines. Uh, <laughs> so good. I've also... You are so great. Mine was a tree. What was yours? <laughs> I've... <laughs> I was the lobster. Have you all seen that picture of a kid who's who's grass in the school play? It's just him like hurl, uh, curled up and he's covered in green. It's very funny. No, that's awesome. <laughs> that poor child. That's awesome. But I normally see this cut down as a one-act play. So that means that a lot of these characters are cut out and we're going through like the full play. So I agree. There's there's a lot to it, but it's a simpler plot than Oedipus at Colonus for sure. Right. And mm-hmm. there are fewer characters than Oedipus Rex. But... Anyway, so yeah, it fundamentally is a conflict between Antigone's convictions versus the state, which w- one of the famous productions of Antigone was put on in France during World War II. Oh, cool. Yeah, so the this whole conflict of a body being left out in the streets mm-hmm. really resonated with um, World War II France, mm. not, uh, Nazi-occupied France. That would happen where people would be killed and left in the streets, and it was like a pun- an, an additional punishment. You'd have to see that person dead in the streets whenever you were out. Anyway, as we're moving toward the end of this, so Tiresias tells Creon, hey, this is actually really a bad idea. And then eventually Creon's wife also will tell him, hey, this is actually, actually really a bad idea. So everyone is coming out against Creon. So whereas at the beginning of the play, you can reasonably think there's a back and forth, a discussion between the two that both sides have right aspects to them. At this point, you just see Creon is moving headlong into something that every one of his trusted advisors is telling him, do not do this. This is a bad idea. This eventually leads to the death of his son, Haman. So Antigone is in this tomb and there's this whole language about her being wed to death instead of wed to Haman, that there's a sorrow she has that she'll never be a mother, that she wanted to honor her family. She did what she saw was right. And now she's this, this, important life event is being torn away from her, not by her choice, but she, she, she knew going in what her consequence was. And she still did it. Even giving up marriage to the the man that she loved, giving up the opportunity for kids with him. She go knowing all those things. She still did it. It's a a beautiful monologue. And Haman then goes to the tomb with her that he still desires to be wed to her, even in her being wed to death. So then he, I guess that's transitive property. He then also weds himself to death he um, stabs himself, so they're both dead. I'm speeding through to the end of it because it's a Greek tragedy and you can kind of see where this is going. Creon's wife, uh, eventually finding out about the death of her son, goes and kills herself as Wait, well. Wait, is Antigone still alive at this point? Antigone is dead. Antigone's the first death. How'd she die? She just like oh, she was hung in the tomb? Sorry. Oh, she, yeah, she goes to the tomb and then she hangs herself because she doesn't want the torture of like dying from starvation. That totally, I get it. Um, totally so then sense. Haman comes and then Haman's the second death and then... Creon's wife is the death after that, finding out about the death of her son. But Creon remains alive at the end. Oh, and then fun fact, the wife curses her husband with her last words before dying. Ooh, so anyway, rough. that's a way to go. So everything goes very poorly. I would say that broadly it's to say that Antigone was right all along, that she was the one actually honoring the gods, even though she's breaking a law in doing what she's doing. This would be, I would say this is a political loss for Creon this week. Yes. It's a, he took the L on this one. He, yeah. <laughs> so, but this is strange because in a, he, uh, who says it to him? I, it's uh, one of the messengers or the chorus says to him that he gets the order in the city that he wanted. He gets the law followed in the way that he wanted, mm-hmm. but he takes a cost for it. Yeah, it's dead a family. Cost. Yes. But I mean, this, this, so it's a theme. You've got the theme against like order, like state and family. Yes. Um, and, uh, uh, she chose, Antigone chose family over state and crayon, crayon chose crayon, crayon, uh, (laughs) just colors all over everything by choosing state over family and gets state and loses family and Antigone, she doesn't, I guess she gets family because everyone joins her. (laughs) And she talked her last monologue before she goes is saying that she's, she's now going to her. Huh. father and going to her mother and that she will be reunited with them yeah. through this, which I guess that's a whole separate question, but 
there's there's no moral judgment on the suicide that she's committing, which is kind of, I mean, that's a very mm-hmm. Greek thing, mm-hmm. but... Okay, so all that happens, and then the final, this is the end of the play, this is the chorus that gets the final word on this. So Creon sees that he has made this horrible mistake, he regrets these things that have happened, but still kind of stands by that he set a law and he got it to be followed, and laws are important and need to be followed, but obviously... I mean, one of the lines is, for mortal men, there is no escape from the doom we must endure. So it's not a cheery ending. He doesn't feel good about that. Creon also, whatever I touch goes wrong. Once more, crushing fates come down upon my head. So he's Yeah, the Greeks it. weren't exactly known for coloring their tragedies with a tinge of hope. At <laughs> Maybe the we end. need to do a comedy on this play, or on this podcast. That might kind of lift things up. Well, they, you know that when they presented these, it was always three tragedies yeah, a followed by a satyr play. A comedy, yeah. So this is the very end of for the chorus. Wisdom is by far the greatest part of joy, and reverence toward the gods must be safeguarded. The mighty words of the proud are paid in full with mighty blows of fate, and at long last, those blows will teach us wisdom. So, ouch. It is an ouch, but there's this weird hope those blows will teach us wisdom. Creon has learned something. Creon will, if he continues to rule, will rule differently for having gone through all of this and again <laughs> yeah so clearly they're very like happy ending cue, but, cue the ragtime russian <laughs> russians from last podcast <laughs> but i do think whenever y'all say ragtime i think of the uh the, mu- the musical the broadway musical ragtime which have y'all heard that one before mm-hmm. and we will roll on the wheels of a dream anyway so that doesn't sound like ragtime that doesn't sound like ragtime at all it, anyway it's i would feel cheated if i paid for a rag for a musical called ragtime and they're singing these big things what's the there's another one there's one there's a song called ragtime in there i think anyway it's a very good musical i recommend it it's like a retelling similar of, themes to antigone very yeah very, it's a retelling of american <laughs> and frankenstein history. yeah, yeah. Oh, i wish there's kind of some sciencey thing anyway so the the moral at the end of the play in the terms of the play is we go through the suffering. We can't avoid the suffering of life, but we can learn from that suffering and change things afterwards. And I think in a way, this is a, this is the theme of Oedipus's life that the happy ending of the Theban cycle happens at the end of Oedipus at Colonus. And it mm-hmm. only happens because Oedipus who's had a horrible life and the, the choices he's made are not justified in any way, but he gets to have some sort of, reconciliation because he submits himself to the gods. He realizes that pride and rushing forward were his hamartia, were his, were his fatal flaws. And he had some good years in there though. Like in the middle, <laughs> in the, he was the when king he of, stabbed his eyes out. No, before that, Oh, oh, oh. I guess before he found out about the whole married his mom and killed his dad thing. Yeah. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah. Okay. No, even yeah, then, even it's not then, really yeah, your fault. No, is that's it? true. That kind of colors your memory of it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I think I think this point at the end is is what the Theban cycle overall is about. All three of them uh, is that there is a suffering, there is a sadness to life, but we can learn from those things and improve our life by learning those lessons. Mm-hmm. the The fool is the one who gets taught the same lesson over and over again, gets the same punishment over and over again, and doesn't make any any changes. So that is is that an argument for making it so that our consequences come sooner than five marks. <laughs> That's an, so listener, we have a, should we, do we actually want to go into this? Uh, it's, it's like an infraction, one demerit. Yeah. There, we have demerits. And if you get five demerits, you're doing Saturday school and Saturday no, school is like hauling rocks. It's seven. Five is a meeting. Seven. seven. Five is a, five is a meeting, so seven, seven, I mean, are we letting our kids be fools? Cause we're letting them get the same. Yeah. I mean, if we value justice primarily or solely at a single mark, we kick them out of the school. Yes, exactly. That, that's Darn that right. You don't bring a belt. You are out. <laughs> I mean, that would be the full justice view, is, where, is we would say, you have violated... There's a rules, a standard, and as soon as they're violated, you're out. Yeah. So we are... Or the full mercy... Maybe... I don't think this is the full mercy route, but some people would say full mercy is we give no consequences. We have conversations, and we talk with people, and we say, hey, please make a change. Yeah, sink into your depravity. Yeah. And I, that's why I don't think it's a mercy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I, think, I think the discipline is a mercy. So I'm sure we could pick different numbers, but we try to strike a balance by saying, you don't get a harsh consequence immediately, but... If you earn it, you get it. And that's what that's why we, we hold off until the seven. But then there's the year of Jubilee. Yeah. Every trimester, uh, every trimester your yeah. marks your marks are forgiven and then you get to start all over again. Yeah. So Which is what we should call it. Jubilee. The day that happens, Jubilee. Yeah. yeah that's great. They're probably gonna be very We exciting. gotta have there's gotta be some sort of ceremony. <laughs> some sort of ceremony that we do. Like that no, do um, the thing with the abbot with the, the holy water on them. And no, no, no. It's just like 
We like you. We what we should do is we should like get a little effigy spreadsheet, <laughs> like like a spreadsheet effigy with fake student names uh, and fake marks on it, and we set it on fire. Yeah. at the beginning of the trimester, and it's like your your marks are gone. Uh, you are you are made new. Go forth hey, as like building, new so creatures. Can, I'm still waiting for the year of jubilee in the U.S. when all debt is all written. debt is gone. You're banking on <laughs> is that, that one. Huh? Still waiting on that. Yeah, still waiting on that a little while. Can you imagine that happening once in your lifetime? Just all debt gone. Yeah, I. Having been someone who who previously sold bonds, which are debt, I, I am terrified at the idea of that. But and having someone who currently has zero debt, that would be I would be like <laughs> real so mad, cheesed yeah. if everyone got their debt. We're hard for no debt. Wouldn't everyone just take out take on a bunch of debt in the last year and oh totally have it forgiven? Yeah. Well, that, they'd stop. I mean, what would happen is they'd stop giving Linden. debt five years out, and they would or they would give debt in smaller and smaller notes. So you can get one year debt, one year out. Yeah. Anyway. And you have to repay it by that time. Sure so do you think Antigone was justified in burying her brother? Yes. The play obviously presents it, presents it that way. Yeah. And I think the way that I know that is the way that she owns her consequence and doesn't try and hide from that. Mm-hmm. She knew the cost of what she was doing and still went forward with it. I guess my, my hang up in all this conversation is how do you divide between the actual noble person doing something that will get them a punishment, but they still should do. And the Pastafarians who just want a tax exemption. Who just or, want to like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, or um, people who want to use recreational drugs, but use the auspices of a um, religious organization to make that okay. Or pretending to have some sort of medical condition. Yeah. I had a buddy that did that in Washington. Yeah. They, they would literally give them green cards. Really? The green card to go is to what the, let the you smoke green. Yeah. That's, yep. It's terrible. Yeah. So, He's I like, I have like cataracts. And I was like, you're 23. <laughs> it's like, you don't have cataracts. He's like, I know. <laughs> it's pretty sweet. So, but it's the same argument for both of, I have a personal disagreement. And so maybe the difference is whether people own up to the consequences. Because we have, we work at a high school, students break rules all the time. But some people say, yeah, I did this. And some try and talk their way. And you are more sympathetic I, to those who own it and say i did this i own up to it and less sympathetic to those that are like yeah but uh, uh, yeah but we talked about this you what just, i did was you I, know because my dog yeah so i think you disagree with this but i i much more appreciate when a student when i catch a student doing something that they shouldn't or point out to them they're being out of dress code and they don't and they accept that they accept that they were in the wrong and accept the consequence i think you don't like that um nah. I think the context uh, of our conversation we were having was we were talking about, um, I didn't like, I don't like it when it's presented sort of flippantly, like, sure. yeah, whatever, yeah. I, I own it. Yeah. I just didn't do it. I don't like that. Yeah. Um, but you're right, there is a certain nobility in saying, you're right, I did this, I accept the consequence. But then there's a certain, like, silliness if that student is doing that in February and March. And also, okay, and they were still, and they were doing it in September, October. Like if they're not learning right. from it, it's no longer noble. It's it's just like, well, you've given up, or you don't care, or I don't know. But that and that's the last line of the play. The those blows will teach us wisdom. Yeah, yeah. That if we will be wise, we will learn wisdom through the blows. Otherwise, we will stay fools. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so. This has been classical stuff you should know. If you have the answer to how does the good man interact and live with the state, or how does the just man live uh, when there are when he is in a time of injustice, email us <laughs> classical stuff <laughs> wow. at veritasacademy.net. Yeah, the whole purpose for this podcast, I guess, is just to find the one real wise man yeah, out there who, that can tell us all the answers. We know you're there. <clears throat> yeah. We don't know why you're listening to podcasts, but <laughs> if you're the truly just to the wise see man. What the- sheep are up to that's right to um and if you want to tweet at us tweet at us at cool stuff at no cool school stuff that's it, that's it. You're yeah the one that's cool school stuff. Twitter, i right? do I'm i just like funny things Great. um and um c-l-s-s-c-a-l and someone uh we were talking about the people damaging who who damaged the pieta during a michelangelo podcast and someone tweeted at us saying that he was the roommate or was in the, the, the boarding house or the, the host, host, not the hospice, the hostel with the guy who thought he was Jesus and took after the, went after the Pieta in the 1970s. So that's cool. That's really cool. Um, uh, I guess that's why the guy went after Jesus' toes with the hammer was because he thought he was Jesus reincarnated and took a hammer to the Pieta, which is I mean, but why does that cool. make you hate art? I don't know. 
Um, I really don't know. A similar... like, if, like if I if I was thought I was you know Abraham Lincoln reincarnated, my first to do would not be to blow up the Lincoln Memorial. Yeah, right. mess up all the Lincoln I'm not statues. Dead. <laughs> I'm back. <laughs> I'm much prettier than this man. Four score. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. I don't know why he did it. I yeah. think that's kind of the point. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so Twitter is just unearthing all sorts of gems recently. That's good. Yep. And um, we're at classicalstuff.net where you can find our episodes and little bios and pictures of beautiful us pictures and of us. And if paintings. you are interested in the classical stuff walking tour <laughs> of chipping Camden to Bath, no, that'd be weird. That'd be weird if we like we're not, had well, sponsors. Are you? No, I'm just saying if, invite people on the if trip we just us? had like people walking with no, us, that'd be no. kind of strange. Yeah, we're gonna. Yeah, I'd rather. Never mind. We're not telling you when it's happening. Um, no, but we're gonna do that. Uh, we think it's going to be fun and we're going to drink beer and um, we should do like Shakespeare readings in the pub at night or something. Oh, that'd be great. That'd be really fun. Yeah. Uh, they'd hate us. I mean, yes. kick us out. Um, yeah. So uh, I don't think we got any classical things wrong. Never. And um, I'm feeling, I feel real bad for Antigone. That's just kind of a bummer. It's a bummer. Yeah. 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 a rough go with things. Anyway, so this is Classical Stuff signing off with Graham, AJ, and Thomas. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.